Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm your host, Albert Zufa, Chief Economist of Africa at the World Bank. Despite the incredible progress that so many countries have made in Africa, poverty remains a defining part of the narrative. A number of African countries have actually made tremendous progress reducing poverty. The poverty rate has fallen substantially from around 54% in 1990 to around 41% in 2015. But this is clearly not enough. And what we find in the new report on accelerating poverty reduction in Africa is that 82% of the poor in Africa live from subsistence agriculture. And we still have a situation where Africa imports most of its food. And the food import bill has risen to around $45 billion in 2014. And this is putting a lot of pressure on the fiscal space. And just imagine how much $45 billion can do for education, for health, for African people. And this, despite the fact that Africa still has most, most of the arable land on earth and could not only feed itself, but feed the world. These are some of the findings of our new report. And what is even surprising to me is that if we continue business as usual, poverty will be an African phenomenon by 2030. That's just 10 years down the road. You would agree with me that this is not acceptable. Something needs to be done about this situation. I'm here today with two of my colleagues, Captain Beagle and Luke Christiansen, the main author of our new regional study that we just published on accelerating poverty reduction in Africa. Kathleen is currently a lead economist in the gender group, and Luke is a lead economist in the social protection and jobs group, both here at the World Bank. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, Albert. All, all my pleasure having you on Afronomics. Let's jump right in. Poverty, especially extreme poverty, is defined as living under $1.9 per day. What does that look like? Concretely, This actually means that people have barely enough to eat and nothing else to spend on anything else. So this is why it's called extreme poverty. And it has been defined as such. It has been deliberately put as low as it could be. Uh, people have enough calories to just get by, but that's about it. So basically, extreme poverty means you barely can eat and nothing is left to send your kids to school or to get some medical attention if you fall sick. Is that correct? Um, that's more or less correct. I mean, what it means is uh, people have just enough food to get to a minimum calorie threshold and a small amount of resources to buy what we call non-food items, non-food essentials. 
but they don't have money left over to make important investments in their children, to, uh, as you said, to go to the doctor when they're sick, to invest in their income activities. So this is a very low threshold. And in fact, many countries in Africa and in other parts of the world, certainly, use much higher thresholds for their own um, national approaches to poverty. So we, I think what's important to keep in mind is with 41% of people living below this very low line, this is a signal that poverty is, in fact, quite extreme and, and deep in the region and, and should be, as you said, a cause for great concern and great action. And, and, and what is concerning even more is that the rest of the world, especially areas in Asia that used to be home to the largest number of poor, have been making a lot of progress reducing poverty and extreme poverty, if we're not careful, if we continue business as usual, will only be in Africa. How do we get out of this situation? So the fact that basically other countries have made progress is also good. And we basically in this report review what can be learned from the experiences of these other countries for the African context. Of course, it needs to be adjusted to the African context. But nonetheless, there are some important pointers which we can learn uh, from other countries. One important one, what, what we observe is that Progress against poverty reduction often comes along with a more rapid decline of uh, the demographic growth, a more rapid decline of fertility. Basically, what we've observed is that child mortality has come down. It's still at high levels, but it has come down. And the decline in fertility, the number of children uh, per woman, has not declined as fast. And as a result, population has been growing. And this has been growing quite fast still at 2.6 per year on average in, uh, in Africa. And as a result, that puts a big burden on the whole economy uh, to, to sort of get to make progress. And, and, but I'd so. like to add, so this is a, a lesson drawn on both from other countries and within countries in the region, uh, countries outside the region and countries in the region. Um, but it's important to emphasize, I think, a couple of aspects to what Luke has just described on the demographic patterns. And the first is that uh, bringing, you know, addressing high fertility uh, is not it's not about to bringing fertility down, but rather making reproductive health services improved for women and for men and for families, um, empowering women, um, giving people income opportunity choices um, that, from all the evidence we have, lead them to have smaller families that they can invest more in each child. Uh, the second observation uh, that I wanted to feature is in countries with high fertility in the region, the poorest families and the poorest households have very high levels of fertility. And mm. all the evidence we have suggests that it's part of the poverty trap for these families. And again, access to services, access to income opportunities is part of that trap. Exactly. That's clearly linked to uh, our strategy in the Africa region, where we believe empowering women is actually one of the keys to poverty reduction. And, and, and empowering women is all about you know, providing access to labor market to women, providing them with skills. It's about providing them with all the opportunities to access not only uh, productive assets, but also health uh, and, 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 and all the, uh, the, 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 the benefit of, of education, the benefits that, that come with education. So it's clearly 
uh, in line with what we have been uh, doing in the Africa region and working in some countries. So that gender dimension of poverty is actually one of the things that comes out from the report. Look, mm -hmm. how can we tackle that gender gap? I think you bring already, you point already to a number of, of areas in which it can be done. Uh, female education, uh, education of girls remains right. a first entry point. Yeah. Uh, much of progress has been made in that regard and that must be acknowledged. Now, one of the challenges with education, educational progress in general is that while kids, both boys and girls, have been more in school, the quality of learning has still been very low. And that then only gets us so far. So this is a, a big area of attention. In terms of uh, female education, girls' education, uh, while there is more parity now at the level of uh, primary schooling, when it gets to secondary schooling, there is still uh, a bigger gap between the enrollment rates of, of boy, boys and girls. Secondly, there's access to land, access to assets, access to credit. And, and again, there a number of initiatives can be taken to, to improve women's access to basically productive assets, to right. things they can use to earn more money. Right. Uh, so that that's a, a second part. A third part is, I think, more broadly the social norms, and that's sort of a more a much deeper and and, and, and much bigger challenge. Uh, but it is about everybody having all the opportunities to contribute to getting a better life. That's right. And if there are social norms which sort of manifest themselves in sort of odd ways, if you want, but if some of these statistics pointing to whether it's justified to be beaten by your husband if you leave the house without permission, uh, and there is a sizable share of women who feel that that is a justification, then that is clearly an indication of a social norm which says, look, if you can't go out of the house, how can you participate in, in economic life unless there is sort of that control? That's just one simple example, right, but it's man it manifests, oh, it's, it's an example of the social norm. That's right. No, it's, it's, it's extremely important at country level, at, at community level, that those social norms are identified and, and removed to allow women to uh, live up to their full potential. And, and one of the uh, most important findings here is, is that there is a gap in productivity, a gap in income between men and women that, that clearly do not uh, help in, in addressing poverty. You know, I'm, I'm glad you, you raised that because I want to, you know, I, I, of course, I, um, I like what Luke said about female education. The challenge, um, and this is not only for Africa, it's in other regions also, is while, again, there's a lot of parity reached in many countries, definitely at the primary level and often at the secondary, where we see a gap is translating those investments in education into income opportunities for individuals and particularly for women. So it's not enough to send kids to school and bring the girls to school. We have to think about how, what are their opportunities to access credit, to own assets, um, how do we face discrimination in the labor market where we have increasing levels of evidence that it exists? And I'll mention one thing about social norms. You know, I think five or ten years ago, particularly economists, I think we're, we're three of us are economists, in the econ space, there was a sense, I believe, that we can't do anything about social norms. Just wash our hands of the problem. It's cultural, you know. And so we, we look to other things like active labor market policies and programs. 
Um, but we have a growing body of evidence that we can shift social norms through certain types of interventions and programs. And they have been changing across the world, actually. And they're changing. I mean, yeah. even, Luke, you know, the statistic on the percent of women who find it acceptable for a husband to beat his wife under certain conditions, we've seen that declining mm. in Africa. Africa is not a static uh, continent, and it's a set of countries that have a lot of diversity and, and are changing. But can we change it faster? That's our challenge. Can That's we move challenge. it faster? Now, another area where we need to move things faster is agricultural productivity. Mm-hmm. As we said, as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, 82% of our poor our people living in extreme poverty in Africa actually live in rural areas and live from subsistence agriculture. What can be done? Look, what is this report telling us about what should be done to improve the condition of people living from agriculture? How do we boost productivity in agriculture to raise those income and lift millions, millions of people out of extreme poverty in Africa? I'm glad you bring this up. And uh, to be provocative, I would even argue that it hasn't been properly tried. Okay. Even today, we're basically, if you just look at the share of government spending which goes to agriculture and rural investments, it's around a little bit more than 3%. It was up a little bit, close to 4%, just after the world food price crisis in 2008. But that's still well below what Asian countries have been doing when they were at the level of development that African countries are today. So even at the time, 20, 30 years ago, Asian governments were spending much more on agriculture and rural development than African countries are today as a share of their government revenues, meaning as a share of their capacity. But let me push back a little bit there, uh, Luke. Uh, You know, we have this publication uh, which shows that it's not just about the level of spending, but also the efficiency of spending. More importantly, it's also about the quality of spending, right? Where is... uh, where are we in Africa investing those resources in agriculture, mostly in subsidies instead of investment in irrigation, investment in you know, extension or equipment that could actually raise productivity? So it's not just about increasing the level of spending. It's also about quality of spending. Don't you agree? I can't agree more. Uh, and indeed, when there was even that small increase from 3 to 4 percent, most of that went to subsidizing single inputs. That's sort of another important element. Agriculture is complex, like many other things are, but you, you can't just single out one or two inputs or one or two inter- areas of intervention and then hope that somehow you're really going to make a dent. This requires a more integrated approach right. where you tackle several constraints at once. Right. Now, there is a one, one solution, if you want, or one, one organizational uh, answer which is being promoted is value chain development. Mm -hmm. And so over the past five to 10 years, much more attention has been shifting to developing the chain. What does that mean? That means linking farmers to markets. That means working with buyers and then basically bringing them in contractual arrangements with farmers. So a simple scheme could be that I'm a buyer. I want a certain product. I give the farmer a credit so that they can buy the inputs. I give them the improved seats, also on credit. And at the end of the game, 
I buy the products from that farmer. This way, you overcome a number of problems which the farmer has, such as access to credit. They typically don't have that. Access to good seeds. They typically don't have that. They may even be on the market, but of poor quality. Or access to fertilizer. Again, maybe on the market, but of poor quality. Or it may be just too far away, like they can't preach the last mile to get the fertilizer. So all these things in a contractual arrangement uh, can be overcome simultaneously. Now, I would want to put one big caveat to this. What we see is that these types of arrangements work much better for what we call non-staple crops or crops which have higher value added. What are staple crops? These are basically the the cereals. This is the roots and tubers. And basically, there are many buyers, there's undifferentiated product. So if I go into a contract with you, and at the end of the day, you sell it to somebody else, there's always a buyer to buy it. Right. Or the other way around, for me to get the interior risks, to make that contract, I can also break the contract as a buyer and buy from somebody else. So for the farmer to agree to enter in such a contract may not be as interesting. Look, that's extremely interesting that you're raising this issue in terms of value chains. Because, you know, more and more, it is the case that the solution to agricultural productivity may not only lie in the village. So some of the resources may actually have to be invested along that value chain that may actually end in cities. So opposing urban to rural may not actually be the right approach. I, I, um, I completely agree. And I, and I wanted to make the point that, you know, you, you cite the statistic that 82% of the poor in Africa are in rural areas, yeah. largely in smallholder farming activities. Uh, but the agenda the agri- and the agriculture agenda that Luke is laying forward, the focus on value chains and staple crop productivity and integration, um, is not just a solution for poor people in rural areas That's because right. a large share of people who don't work on a farm are still in the food system broadly. Exactly. They're selling food on the street corner in towns. They're and involved in processing and they're buyers. And they're in cities. So this is an agenda that that complements efforts to lower food prices in urban settings, right. increase job opportunities in urban settings or in small towns and secondary cities through processing opportunities. Uh, and, you know, to, to speak to the bigger macro picture, alleviate the pressure governments have when they need to import to very import. expensive rice or, exactly. you know, chicken from Brazil or what have you, exactly. um, produce it locally, Get your poor farmers to make it and make it with a higher productivity for the farmer. Their income goes up. People pay less for food. It feels very much like a win-win. And, and, and to add to that point, Kathleen, with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, we'll not have a 1.2 billion mm-hmm. market for those food stuff that can be exported across African countries yeah. and therefore reducing that import bill, you know, you know, and, and keep those resources to invest on yeah. African children, right? Absolutely. So, so, so that's clearly an, an important uh, opportunity. Now, Kathleen and Luke, you have raised in this report the prospect for technology to help alleviating poverty. Over the past couple of editions of this podcast, we have discussed the formidable potential of new technologies and the digital in financial inclusion, or in the future of work, for example. What does that mean for the poor, Kathleen? Well, I I appreciate that question because I think when we think of um, 
new technology, particularly digital, and frontiers of things like solar power, we tend to think of middle-income populations being served by this. But what we highlight in the report are a number of ways in which these technologies, if they're de- if if their development exists a certain way, can benefit the poor quite directly. Right. Whether or not it's mini grids to empower very small villages to have power sources for irrigation and irrigation. processing like Absolutely. rice mills, uh, whether or not it's delivering um, price data to smallholder farmers on their phones so they right. don't have to travel to secondary towns. Or extension services. And get information, extension extension services, weather forecasting, uh, whether or not it's accessing healthcare information, um, notifying, reminding households when vaccinations are due for children, th- again, through their phone most likely. All of these are ways that technology can really drill down and be very meaningful for poor households. But what we also mention in the report is this may not happen organically or without a concerted effort to focus that technology and development on these things that can really benefit the poor, to make it pro-poor technology. And so we think that institutions like our own, the World Bank, but also certainly governments in the region can do more to make technology a, more of a pro-poor agenda than a kind of random walk, which to date it's it's largely been. That's right. And and we've seen in some areas in Nigeria, Kenya, uh, tractors mm-hmm. <laughs> using, uh, you know, the leveraging the share economy. Yeah. So, yeah, Uber-like tractors mm-hmm. in, yeah. you know, in helping to increase productivity in rural areas. That's clearly something quite, quite revolutionary and we should harness that. Now, let me uh, you know, touch on one of the issues you, you address in the report, which is cash transfers. Look, you've been working on cash transfers across Africa. Can you tell us a specific example of where you see them working and how? Thank you very much. Uh, I'm actually working on a cash transfer program in uh, Cote d'Ivoire and more particularly on expanding that cash transfer program or, or linking the cash transfer beneficiaries two markets. And more particularly, we are basically linking them up with the value chain, in Cote d'Ivoire, a rice value chain. And the whole idea is, coming back actually to the point you you made earlier about the need to reduce imports, Mm -hmm. in Cote d'Ivoire, a lot of huge amounts of rice imports. At the same time, we have a cash transfer program. How can we help cash transfer beneficiaries to earn more money themselves by linking them up to this big opportunity of producing rice for the domestic market. And so through that value chain development, uh, we try try to do that. And we are actually examining whether cash transfer beneficiaries, when we support them with value chain development, whether that has a bigger effect, whether it works better than if we don't give cash but only do value chain development. Excellent. Now, can I just ask you to say a few words on another very important aspect in the report that you discussed, which is uh, uh, climate change and and the shocks that do impact the poor disproportionately. Very quickly, what can we say? I'm glad you bring this up. I think at the core of the report, the core of the report is about raising the incomes of the poor as directly as possible. It's not about big grant schemes, and then hoping somehow that things will, as they say, trickle down. So right. the focus is on try to intervene where the poor are, where they, what they do, and work with that uh, to raise their incomes as directly as possible. A fundamental part of that is that many of these activities are very risky, right. meaning 
You mean income activities? Income activities are very risky. If you're in agriculture, everybody who has done any agriculture know that's a very risky business. It may rain, it may not rain. And even if it rains, the insects may come, they may may eat everything. And then when you bring the product produced to the market, the price may collapse. So these are all kinds of risks. You may fall sick in the meantime. So you are constantly dealing with all these risks. So helping people to cope, to better manage this risk, help poor people to better manage this risk is an integral part of any strategy which tries to build assets to get them get them better access to markets, etc. The safety nets are one instrument of doing that. Right. So, Kathleen, one last word as to what our government should do to protect our poor, the poor people from all these climate and conflict-related shocks. Wow. Wait, one, do I get one word or Just 10 minutes now? Just two words. <laughs> Just two words. Uh, wow. I mean, it's a, it's a really big question. I think the focus we take on the report is um, a lot of our response to climate shocks um, is what we say ex post. So after the event occurs, what can we go in to do to fix the problem? But we have to, we need, and every, I think by and large is agreement, we need to shift to an ex ante approach. What can we do ahead of time? Right to be prepared for a shock and lessen the impact when it actually happens. It's a, it's a cheaper way. Now, this is a challenge because no one wants to pay for something that hasn't happened yet. Um, and it's much easier for all of us to pay after it happens, but it's much more costly. So we talk about a number of avenues on, on what you can do ahead of time um, to be prepared for shocks. So some so, examples may include... Uh, drought resistance varieties, irrigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, when you talk about acting ex ante, this is not just people who may not want to do it, but it's the same also governments mm-hmm. who don't want to act ex ante. Excellent. With this, I would really like to thank you, Kathleen and, and Luke, for this wonderful uh, discussion. Please read this report. Just a reminder to our listener, you can find this and other recent publications at worldbank.org slash AFRCE. And for more, you can follow me on Twitter at Albert Zufak to share your views, questions, and ideas. Until the next time, and thank you for listening.